Hey, this is Cindy Yang, and you're listening to Station F's new podcast, Entrepreneur Talks. This first episode is dedicated to femtech founders. As some of you may know, Station F launched a femtech program last year to help companies in this space grow their businesses. We are currently recruiting startups for our second batch, so if you or anyone that you know are building in this space, check out our website. Applications are open until April 24th. Now, some people, when they first hear the word femtech, may think of period tracking apps. But femtech is a much wider industry that encompasses all technologies addressing women's health, including reproductive health, hormonal health, pregnancy, menopause, and a lot more. In today's episode, we will be interviewing Alexandra Fine of Dame Products, a leading sex tech company based in New York City. Founded in 2014, Dame has become a key player in the industry and opened a door for many companies to follow. So we are super excited to have Alexandra, their co-founder and CEO, on the show. We have also invited founders currently in Station F's Femtech program to co-host today's episode, Ellen Oire and Andrea Olson of Bumpy. Hi, Ellen, Andrea. Hi. Hi. So can you tell us the quick pitch of Bumpy? Absolutely. So... Today, one in six couples go through infertility, and it's the case that every fourth pregnancy ends in a miscarriage. So infertility is common, unfortunately, but many people suffer alone. Uh, and what we want to do with Bump is we want to connect them. So we're building a platform where you can find others that are going through similar issues. And it's also very hard to find the right fertility provider today. So we want to combine that on our platform. So finding others and finding your uh, fertility provider. Amazing. Um, it also is the fact that research shows that... Um, most women that are going through infertility show the same signs of stress, anxiety and depression as cancer patients. So what we want to do with Bumpy is help these women. Super. I'm so excited to dive into this interview with you. To our dear listeners, this episode includes so many inspiring, shocking, spicy and incredibly insightful tips and stories on building a femtech startup. So trust me, you will not want to miss a second. This podcast is supported by TikTok. TikTok takes brands into the digital era, from helping them reach new audiences to setting their campaigns up for success. TikTok empowers businesses to make the most out of its tools. So what if TikTok was the asset your business needed today to thrive tomorrow? Hi, Alex. I'm here with Ellen and Andrea of Bumpy. Hi, Alex. Hi, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. Hi, Alex. I'm Ellen. So great to have you. So my first question is that what was your biggest drive or motivation for starting Dame Products? Um, I think that, you know, there's like there's two there was two really big drives for me. There was this drive of I, I really believe that the, there was so much innovation and opportunity being left on the table by not creating uh, sexual pleasure products that really centered around the vulva-bodied experience, the women's experience. So I just kind of really felt like the product I was designing and the products I had in my head were really needed. So I had this drive to just like create. And then I think I also had this drive 
um, that I still do, which is like sometimes like just trying to prove something to the world, to my parents maybe, about being able to run a business and do that, um, especially because I was 26 when I, when I started the business. So I really wanted to prove myself as a, as a business person. That's so great. Thank you for sharing. Alex, a question that I have for you is we often hear about the difficulties of fundraising for a femtech company. Um, so how was this experience for you? I know that you raised uh, over $4 million at Dame. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, so I actually got started with Indiegogo and crowdfunding and then did also Kickstarter. So I definitely um, like circumvented the 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 VC system that does seem to really have a bias against uh, female entrepreneurs and women of color in particular um, by going directly to community and going directly to consumers. So that was, you know, really validating to start the business in that way and realize like, okay, people, people believe in what we're creating and they're willing to, to pre-order products. But then on the flip side, investors, weren't signing up um and that was so much harder and i think like one raising capital is hard period no matter who you are no matter what you're doing it is it's tough i think you're really trying to convince somebody else really quickly that you would be an excellent steward for their hard-earned or potentially inherited money um and it's a lot you know I think there's so many ways humans build trust, but having trust by having just like a quick understanding of that person and who they are and being able to relate to them is you're at such a disadvantage if, unfortunately, we seem to be at such a disadvantage in that way because most of the people you're talking to are men and you are not. And it's tough. I think on the one hand, I never, never left a meeting really and felt like, oh man, because I look like a woman or I'm talking about femtech, that that was the problem. However, I have way more traction often with uh, female investors. And I know that the stat is like 2% of VC dollars go to female founders. Um, so I think there's that. But also femtech is actually a really well-invested area right now. There's been a lot of money that's starting to go to femtech. So um noticing that too and not in there are there's the wind in my face and then there's also wind at my back and trying to kind of sit with both winds and acknowledge that they're both there and that all I can do is try harder and or just hone my pitch and work on the business and keep finding new customers and improving our retention all of that you know I can control that a lot more easily so working on that Andrea and Ellen, I mean, you girls are currently fundraising or just finished your round? We actually just kicked it off. So we're in the beginning of this journey and I can really relate to what Alex is saying. Um, Coming also working with infertility, that's often seen as a female issue, which is definitely not the case. And just having to start every discussion to talk, because just like Alex mentioned, many of these investors are men. And having to start even explaining the problem and the market and just seeing that they don't really get it. So that's the first hurdle to get over. So I really relate to what what Alex is saying. Yeah. And I do think on the one end, you know, 
all investors like to hear how big markets are and to, you know, like if there's dollars there, there are dollars there. Um, and there's certainly dollars in, in femtech and in fertility challenges. But when they can't emotionally connect with a the problem, there's a real disconnect. Um, so I do think there are so many things that we need to do to change the pipeline, to change like the that VC funded gap. But part of it is also finding having more female investors for sure. And I love what you said, Ellen, about it's really not just a female problem too. And that is, I almost, I sometimes really struggle with the concept of femtech. It depends, depending where, you know, we don't call male tech. Exactly. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it almost, calling it femtech, it makes it sound like it has this small, that it is somehow niche. Yeah. But really, it's just um, not the page, like not centered in, in men. And, and it's just, it's a little frustrating because, you know, 30% to 40% of my purchases come from, from men. People are often surprised by that. And of course, fertility and sexual pleasure is often between two people and not all the time, but often is between two people of different sexes. And so it's not just a female, I don't know, challenge. And of course, fertility certainly isn't. No, no, exactly. But what we've also seen is that most of the investors that we do speak to are women, actually, and that are interested, which is interesting. I had, you know, this is about six years ago, when I first started going out, I had a lot of female investors too, who were like super excited about what we were doing, but we're just like, look, I don't want to be pigeonholed. I don't want to be the female investor investing in female stuff. And they, so they didn't want to invest in me. And also, cause I was also sex, which is a little, you know, also they weren't trying to ruffle feathers. They were trying to show that they were just as good in the space. Um, I, and I think on, on the one hand, a lot of people be like, oh, that's so, that's so sad, you know, but I also like totally get that. There's something about that experience as a woman of just being like, I don't know, that it, it resonated with me too. And it just, it did really make me sad because I was like, look, I get where you're coming from, but also it's just making it harder for me um, when it feels like the path is like lubricated for men. <laughs> Of course, I use lubricated as a um, way of describing it. Um, it's really frustrating. So that brings me to the next question. How do you address the taboo around sex tech? Because for us, uh, dealing with fertility or infertility, obviously, it's a huge, huge taboo and stigma around it. And people really struggle to open up about miscarriages, going through fertility treatments. How has that been for you? How have you experienced that? I often like to present the brand as if the taboo didn't exist and for our marketing to just treat it like it's normal this is normal people masturbate yeah no big deal we say vulva so what and kind of like have that attitude like i think kind of just like showing what it's like to live or or what if the taboo didn't exist and people are like oh yeah oh yeah i can say vagina now you said it i said it now we're all saying vagina but you know there's limitations to that um you know it is so like a private experience. I don't, I think it's just about starting the conversation with investors in particular. I also like to remind them that the taboo is the opportunity, right? Like there is, 
Like that, that is why this is exciting. That is why this is disruptive because we are like the taboo exists and we are shifting it. And that's why we are truly creating a market. And it's a fun thing to do. Like I think investors are excited about like shifting culture. Like I want investors who are excited about that. So like that's how I'll present it there. But then often in marketing, it's about like, showing up as a brand and our brand actions in the way that kind of presents presented as if it, you know, why should this be shameful? Um, we also really rely on personal, like I really believe in sharing personal narratives too, but it is hard. I think it's hard, especially when I think about what you guys do. Um, and of course it's true for sex, which is just because it's not shameful doesn't mean it isn't still a deeply personal and private and intimate experience. And it's okay to not want to share everything, right? But it's also really important that we feel like we can talk to a support system about it and share more. And it's such a great point that you have there because we had the same thing in the beginning when we started talking to investors. We didn't want to make them feel uncomfortable. So we left out our own personal stories, which is ridiculous. We didn't want to start talking about miscarriages um, in such a, on such a personal note. And then we just changed and we did exactly what you said. We decided to start treating this like it's not a taboo subject. So now we open every pitch we do with talking about our personal stories. And that has shifted, shifted the mindset of the investors completely. That makes so much sense, you know, and I do think like I've, I've seen a lot of other um, entrepreneurs go through this journey, too. Like, I think I there's no doubt in my mind that that's also a more effective pitch. You know, it, you're starting with pathos, you're starting with this, you know, emotional connection, and I'm seeing you as a human, like, that's really powerful. It also can turn on you. You don't want to feel like, oh, man, I have to talk about this every time to, you know, build myself or to, you know, so it's, yeah, I see a lot of entrepreneurs uh, struggle with that in some way. But I think it's important. And I think it's really beautiful to share. This leads us to, I mean, Ellen and Andrea, you have like insane stories. Um, I don't know if you want to share I mean, with Alex and with our listeners. I would love to hear your stories. <laughs> Do you want to go first? I can go first. So, so yeah, my story started eight years ago when me and my husband decided to have kids because that's how we thought it worked. Um, unfortunately, didn't. We uh, had our first miscarriage and uh, right before the summer, we had miscarriage number 12. So we are still in the exact same spot uh, that we were eight years ago. Um, during this time, we've also been going through lots of IVF pro processes. We have been doing seven of them in Sweden and our doctors told us that uh, unfortunately we cannot get help in Sweden. So we are now traveling abroad to get help with IVF and still haven't succeeded, but um, not giving up the hope. Yeah, and my story is uh, very different to Elin's, but we share the same feelings. Uh, I actually was diagnosed when I was 16 that I don't have a uterus, um, which was very confronting back, at the <laughs> back in the time. And um, I went through several uh, IVF processes um, to retrieve eggs and create freeze embryos. Um, after I moved to Sweden, uh, I actually took part in the research trial and had one of the first uh, uteruses transplanted from a deceased donor in the world, um, 
which sounds amazing, and it was, but <laughs> unfortunately it uh, went to hell a couple of months later and I had severe complications, um, ended up spending four months in hospital, and uh, yeah, I had the uterus removed again, and I still don't have any children, so um, we're both still very much in this. Yeah, wow. Those are, yeah, I um, I have a, a nine-month-old, so I recently um ha- you know recently became a mom and early on in my pregnancy I thought I was having a miscarriage I bled pretty heavily one day um and I don't know I, it was just it I remember just continuously telling myself this is normal it's okay it's okay it's okay and then when they found a heartbeat I like just broke down and I realized like oh my god this was so much grief I was trying to pretend was okay and it wasn't okay. Or like, I was really sad about it. Um, it's just so, it's, it's it really, it's hard. Yeah. And then, you know, I, I've had so many friends who've gone through IVF, who've had miscarriages, miscarriages at 20 weeks, or I've, I even had a friend who had a stillbirth and it's just been, um, just really sad experiences for my community and we've learned so much through them too and they've been really powerful for us and I think have deepened our my, my community a lot our friends are even closer yeah no that's what we discovered as well because we didn't talk about this in the beginning but when I started opening up about my miscarriages and my IVF processes just like you, I had a lot of friends around me that were going through the same things, but no one talked about it. So we were all sitting in our own houses going through these miscarriages, but we didn't share it with each other. And that's definitely where my passion for Bumpy comes from, to change that. And it's hard to show up too. You know, it's hard to show. It's, it's, a, it's so challenging, especially I know for me, and I don't know if you guys see this in your community, but I definitely have, I have, I had survivor's guilt, you know, I had like, feelings like you know it's really you know I remember one of my friends um who actually the the one who had a stillbirth she was like you know I don't ever want you to feel like you are diminishing your joy because of my my pain and I was like that's so helpful to hear I'm like because it's 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 so hard you know like it's so yeah and it's it's also the journey too of IVF. There's just so much there too that like, like you you hear the word IVF, you don't realize how much work that is. I was pissed off just about how often I had to go to the doctor while I was pregnant. Like it's just a lot of work, and I and and it's your friends are going through it. I can only it's it's really powerful to just have community too that that is going through it with you. Like you know I can see like oh and two two friends sit down who are both going through it and they can really just sit with the what is challenging for each other and what they're experiencing and have that shared space. It's really beautiful. No, exactly. And that's really what we want to do with Bumpy and because you really need to go through something like that to, to understand it. How did the two of you meet actually, Andrea and Ellen? Yeah, that's actually a good story. We, we met as friends um, through a common friend and we that was four years ago, and we really actually bonded over the fact that we both are infertile or yeah, yeah. so 
that's how we met. And then we both realized we have to do something about this and we want to help other women going through infertility or navigating their fertility. Yeah, Amazing. Breaking new ground in the infertility space. Exactly. <laughs> um, Alex, I have a question for you. So Dame Products, um, you guys have been a turning point for a lot of femtech companies in the United States. Uh, notably for your insane story um, about how you led a three-year battle uh, with the MTA to do ads in the subway in New York City uh, and won that battle. Can you tell us a bit more about the story, like how it went down? Yeah. So what happened was, it's a long story, so I try to keep it short. Um, but of course, there's always details that I leave out, which is, you know, we wanted to run ads in the subway the New York City subway system said we could, well, New York City subway system works with a proxy. They said that we could run ads. We worked with them for literally six, seven months. Um, and we sent them, they approved the ads and everything. We send them an invoice. We're like, okay, let's pay. Let's make this happen now. And they ghost us. And then they send, tell us uh, about three weeks later that they, they do not and never will work with any sexually oriented businesses. Meanwhile, if you were getting on the subway right then and there, you were going to see erectile dysfunction advertisements. Um, you were going to see advertisements for the Museum of Sex, which is an amazing museum of New York City that also sells our products. I would imagine that they actually make a lot of their revenue from vibrator sales. Um, and there were advertisements, of course, that use sex to sell non-sex products. So I was like, that just doesn't feel true. I went to press, I got some press attention for it, but they were still wouldn't let us do it. And then I, I spoke to a lawyer who let me know that because the MTA is not a private company like Facebook, they're, they're you know, a government run space that they need to make sure that if they have a policy that they're using that policy, they're... Um, deploying the policy fairly and, and equitably and that I had a case because they, they clearly weren't. Um, and then I entered a lawsuit and we got a lot of attention for it. So that was great. People like to ask me if I did it for the press and I say, I was trying to run ads for the attention. So like, you know, it felt like a, it, it was a win-win, you know, I was both- Two birds, one stone. Yeah, I was both getting, I both got a lot of attention for the lawsuit and you know like you don't wake up you don't start a business to sue people but I did start a business to change our our understanding and perception of female sexual pleasure and this is the way I got to do that in legislation like through the legal system which was really cool um and it took three years and it was ridiculous and we actually settled so um I you know pretty much they kind of came to us and like like we'll give you x if you just drop the case and i was like no give me this these are the things that i want and the main thing i really wanted was to run ads in the subway system um so i was able to do that i it was a lot of compromising um it was really an incredibly infuriating process um i also literally like was giving birth during the negotiations and i was just like ever just like let me it wasn't actually that was not literal I said literally but like no obviously it was around the same time um and yeah so 
it, it was just frustrating. But eventually we got to run ads on the subway. I think the the press, a lot of people said we won, even though technically we settled. Uh, and But it felt like we won, you know, like I knew what we wanted. I stayed really clear on like, that's the intention of this lawsuit is we're going to run ads. Um, and we ran advertisements and it felt like a real win to be able to host that conversation on the subway. It, it was a wild experience. To sum it up, you're basically a rock star uh, walking into court pregnant <laughs> and uh well it was covid so it was like i was at my living in my grandma's pool house at the time because we were doing construction on my house well before the baby came and i so i'm like during covid doing depositions pregnant versus like really going into court but i like your version of it where i'm like pregnant walking into court and like making oral cases but really, it was more me in a room, you know, answering questions. And a lot of the conversation that I was witnessing was around, like, really trying to deconstruct these ideas around what is, like, sexually prurient and what isn't. And why, why do we call sex toys sex toys versus erectile dysfunction medication, which is you know, arguably a sex toy, right? Like what makes it, like, why is one more valid than, than another? And I thought that that was really fun and interesting to have those conversations. There's this idea that the male erection is necessary, that it's a vital part of men's health, but that female pleasure is not. And I would actually argue like, we don't need either of them to live but it's what we do to feel alive and that they are certainly valid and important pillars in our overall well-being that we should find healthy, safe ways of having conversation about. Um, so that, that was kind of, but it's interesting. I can't tell you how often people seem to think that, well, erectile dysfunction is like that. Of course, that that would be, that's more socially acceptable for a logical reason over a vibrator but when you push people on that like well what's the logical reason it really starts to crumble um pretty quickly that's so true and such an amazing story so i also just uh, heard that uh, i heard that sephora recently started selling sexual wellness products and this is obviously a huge turning point for companies in this space can you tell us a little bit about how you did this and how did this come about yeah, um, about five years ago, I started talking to the buyer at Sephora, and they, you know, I think whenever we come down to like being the first somewhere, changing policy, it's often just about understanding the mandate and the mission of the other brands. So for Sephora, you know, they want to help people feel confident in their skin, you know, and that's what I do. You know, just showing them, reminding them that like self-pleasure, self-love is self-care and it is such a powerful way of sparking an inner glow. I mean, there are these great photos online of people pre and post orgasm. You can just see their faces flushed. I mean, the original idea of makeup was to like make your lips redder as if like you're aroused. Like that is, and your face is flushed. Like. There is such a powerful 
connection between what we do and like let's own it and embrace it and empower you know women to feel beautiful and to feel sexually beautiful and that's you know that's kind of like what attraction is about yeah so and they were like yes oh my god they were like this is great she was like I remember she said two things that were really powerful for me where she was like one this is so great this is like we know here at Sephora that this makes sense, but you've done such a great job of articulating why it makes sense. And it's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And when was like five years later. Um, and I think we did a good job of just like constantly pinging them, being like, hey, we were in the New York Times. Hey, we just launched a new product. Hey, we are here now. You know, like we're, on, we're in Revolve. We were Revolve's number one beauty skew the first month that we launched, like just giving them these data points and showing, you know, just like keeping them informed in our growth. Um, and then one day they were like, let's make this happen. That's so great. And is that how you pitched this as well? Pitched it as well? Talking about how it made you glow from the inside? Because I love that idea. Yeah. yeah. That's so yeah, cool. I mean, that's what we talked about. It was really, it's been a really cool experience and I do think that um a lot of my learnings as an entrepreneur are you know about especially like when it comes to investing like when people say no um they're saying no right now and we both need to respect there's no right now but that doesn't mean we can't continue to try and seduce them into Great point. a consensual yes you know, <laughs> yeah. you know? so I'm definitely thinking about like this parallel around consent and turning no's into yeses because of course I think when it, we think about sex we talk, we think that that's like this bad bad thing but one I don't I don't necessarily think it is and of course when it comes to investors my lead investor in my seed round originally said no to me about 18 months before they said they, they gave me a term sheet that's a great learning yeah definitely yeah And go yeah. <laughs> keep people informed, you know. And talking yeah. about the great learnings, um, of course, we as founders or entrepreneurs make a lot of mistakes. Um, what was your oh, yeah. biggest mistake that you have made? Um, first of all, there's been so many. And there's so many, too, that are just like monetary, like these Like, you know, I, our first batch of products, we had the electronics made in the U.S. And then we shipped the electronics to China, which you can imagine. China places a huge import tax on importing electronic parts to China because who does that? That's what China does. Um, and it was like a 50% tax. On, you know, we weren't expecting it. I didn't know. Like huge like mistake. But then I think what I think are bigger mistakes or like bigger learnings even um, I think one that I'm continuously learning is community is like, a, it's about so much of it's about creating boundaries around having the right people in the right seats. And uh, like, I think, sorry, I'm circling around this idea of like wanting to be a great boss and um always thinking like did I maybe maybe I didn't give the right information to this employee and that's why they're not succeeding or I'm not getting the results I want and constantly thinking you know I needed to be better to make that relationship work when really it wasn't working and that's okay 
and it's okay to break up or to let somebody go. And it doesn't necessarily mean that I'm failing as a boss or even that they're failing as an employee. It just isn't working for the business right now. And that's a totally valid reason to let somebody go. Um, and that's still hard for me because obvious, because it's, I think it's one of the most how it's my biggest power that I, that you get when you are running a business is who's a part of that business. And it's really scary. It's really scary to wield that power. Um, so, cause you just, I don't know. I didn't want to be a shitty boss so badly. Is there something that you would do differently if you could start over? I would give, I wish it would, I just knew it was okay to be kind of a, like, I, I would just give myself permission or help, help my younger self really see that what is the most compassionate for the group of people you're employing is to be the hard ass on making sure that the people there are the right people in the right moment. And that that wasn't me being a bad boss or being an unkind person, but me, that's what, that's, that's actually what's best for the collective. Um, and that really, it wasn't even about me. So I have a question that might be difficult to answer because normally this can happen over time. But is there any moment that you see as a defining moment for when your company really took off? Indiegogo campaign? I mean, we launched, and, and this is, I think, a unique experience or any or the experience of running crowdfunding. You know, we went from not being a business to in our first 45 days, getting picked up, you know, Refinery29, BuzzFeed, um, co- like so many articles about us. And um, we also made a lot of money. So it felt like our debut, it felt like a really clear moment where I was like, oh, this is, this is working. And I feel really blessed um, to have had that so clearly at the beginning, because there were a lot of moments later where I was like, is this working? And to have such a powerful, I, I don't think that's normal. I think a lot of entrepreneurs, you're slowly seeing that it's working over time. And it's a building experience. But because I had this big campaign before we even made the product, um, you know, I had a lot of validation early. It also put a lot of pressure that it felt like failure would be really public. And when in time was this campaign? In, um, so it started in October 2014. So I've been at it for a while. Also curious about the crowdfunding you talked about. Um, why did you choose to go that way? Yeah, um, I... I think especially if you have a hardware product, it makes so much sense or a physical product. I, I actually remember thinking this will help us raise dollars. Like if, if I can first show that there are there's a community of people who are interested in purchasing the product, it'll be even easier for me to raise money. So I'll do this crowdfunding campaign and then I'll have to still raise more money in order to make the first batch of products because the batch of first batch of products was going to cost me like pretty much $200,000. And I wasn't, I didn't really think that I would be able to raise, I wasn't super confident I'd be able to raise that much on Indiegogo. So there was also a really big part of me that thought it would be a million dollar campaign instead of only a half a million dollars. I had both of those thoughts at the same time. 
And um, yeah, so I thought it would be a really good way of validating the product to investors. And that's why I did it. Would you say that that was the key to your success? Yeah, I think so. I think so for so many reasons. One, it's a, I think crowdfunding is a fantastic way of validating your product concept really early on. It was fantastic for cash flow. I mean, it was essentially like I had raised all, I mean, it, it ends up being like revenue versus um, equity raised, which is great because it, I didn't give up any equity. So I was really able to go directly to community. The world supported us and our mission and what we were doing. I didn't need to go through this much more institutionalized and therefore systematically oppressive to the certain identities, as we've previously discussed, um, road. Um, so that was amazing. And that was, and I built community immediately, which is probably the most important part. I had, we like, I think our first, we did it in, we did surveys too. Like after we shipped our first like 10,000 units, we got so much feedback from our, you know, feedback survey. Uh, like what's working about this product? What's not? What do you love about the brand? What don't you love? You know, like just getting feedback. And we had all of these people through the campaign that were just felt like they had a real connection to us and were willing to share. And that's really amazing. And I think hard to come by and hard to develop and it's beautiful. I don't know. Love it. And that that's like, we keep doing that or we try to really remember that it's like not direct to consumer, but direct to community. All right. Amazing. Thank you so much, Alex, for your time. Thank you. Thank so you. nice to meet you. Yeah. So nice to meet you guys. I hope this was enjoyable content for your listeners. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for tuning in to Entrepreneur Talks by Station F. This podcast is supported by TikTok. If you like this episode, make sure to give us many, many stars. And if you have any feedback or would like to suggest a topic to feature, we'd love to hear from you on Twitter or by email at press at stationf.co. And finally, make sure to follow us to not miss our next episodes. We are available on all your usual podcast platforms, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, and Google Podcasts. See you soon. Mm-hmm.